Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in beautiful Ripon, California today. I'm Nathan Fox and in Washington, D.C. we have Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? Good. It's not Ripon out here, but it's good. Yeah, no, I'm at my uh, mom and dad's house, my, my, my hometown. Um, oh, okay, good. Sorry, I thought Ripon was some uh, adjective that I was not aware of. Yeah, everybody does that. No, Ripon, R-I-P-O-N. It's a little farm town in the middle of the Central Valley. I was uh, playing golf over the weekend and I hung out uh, with my mom and dad and my niece and my sister and a bunch of, bunch of family stuff. So, Okay, so you're a golfer. I am, and yes, I'm a terrible amateur golfer. Okay, cool. Uh, it's oh, a, hard. It's a very frustrating sport, which I do not recommend that anyone try to take up late in life, especially. I've been playing since I was about 10, which is young enough to be like halfway decent, but it's still like consistently the most frustrating thing that I do in my hmm. life. I love it and I hate it. Uh, so <laughs> probably that's the way that a lot of people feel about the LSAT. Quick question. Do you lose any, any golf balls while you're playing? I lost a couple. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I hit one. Uh, uh, hit a tree yesterday, and it went in the water. I might have lost one the day before as well. I can't remember. I did not really play my best, which uh, is frustrating. You know, it's just I guess people, LSAT test takers, need to recognize that you're just not going to have your best uh, game every single day. And you just kind of got to show up and and do your best, and try yeah. to try to not let the past uh, results taint your future performance. You know, every day is a new day. Every section is a new section. Anyway, so on today's show, we did an interview uh, with Dave Hall of Velocity Prep, and we talked about a whole bunch of topics all over the place on. Uh, the, the LSAT. So we definitely got into reading comprehension, logical reasoning, and logic games. I'm just going to read a list of bullets here of things we talked about. One was, uh, what do you do on the different sections when the five-minute warning is called? And we talked about different strategies for um, what to do after that five-minute warning. We answered a listener question about what to do if you all of a sudden have one really bad section or one really bad test and uh, if that means anything or if it doesn't mean anything. We talked about what to do when you see a particular answer choice popping up very often in a section like for example if E has been the correct answer seven times already is that the kind of thing that you should start uh, thinking about or worrying about. We also talked about uh, just a whole mess of other LSAT topics so I think that this is going to be a really useful show. Ben, you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Uh, another common question is when when do I diagram, uh, you know, if-then statements, stuff like that. We tackled that as well. I know a lot of people wonder about that. So. Yeah, that is a really common one, and I'm glad we got to address that on today's show. Um, our website is thinkinglsat.com. You can reach me, uh, Nathan, at foxlsat.com. You can get Ben at strategyprep.com. And um, please send us your comments, send us your questions. We love hearing from listeners. And all of the questions on today's show are from listeners. So it's your show. You tell us what uh, you want to hear about, and that's what we're going to do. Yeah. All right. Let's go, uh, let's go get Dave. 
so our first item of business today is uh, on the reading comprehension and the logic games. We have a listener that wants to know what do I do when I have just finished a game and a passage or I'm just finishing up one of the games or passages and the five minute warning is called. Do we want to start the next passage or the, start the next logic game at that point or do we want to go back and uh, double check the answers that we already got to. So um, Dave, why don't you go ahead and kick this one off? Sure. Um, absolutely, and move on to the next game. And for the game section, for me, nothing but nothing changes. We're already using the most efficient possible means of dealing with games questions. So if you've got five minutes left and an entire game in front of you, there really doesn't need to be any shift at all in your strategy if you're using um, the methods that I use to attack the games. Uh, so, you know, just keep it, the, the one shift that I would make is to your mindset about what happens in those last five minutes. Instead of thinking those last five minutes as the time to uh, play mop-up as a time to answer whatever questions you have left. Let's take those last five minutes as an opportunity to get three more questions right. And if you view it through that lens, then I think a couple of things can happen. Number one, it frees you up to actually do the work that you need to do. Um, if you are... Uh, if you're worried about, you know, how many questions you're going to be able to answer and you're thinking you know, I've got to answer all these questions while the left side of your brain is jumping up and down on the right side saying, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. It's very hard to do anything well at all. If, on the other hand, you say to yourself, all right, I'm going to get three more of these. And if I do that, that'll be success. Then um, you adopt more relaxed posture that'll allow your brain to do the work that you need to do in order to get those questions right. And so number two, I think that means that from that starting point, you're more likely to not just get those three extra points that I'm talking about, but in fact, to maybe even finish up the game. So then the, so, the student then says, Dave, but, but, but what do I do? But then uh, what do I do with the questions I don't get to? D for Dave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just D for Dave that shit. Um, which is to say that it really wouldn't matter if you could, you know, Obviously, if there are questions that you don't get to, um, it wouldn't matter at all what your answer was or which answer choices you chose if you're just going to guess. You know, obviously, since you only earn points by getting questions right, you have to fill in an answer to those questions that you don't get to. But if you, if you could be assured that you were choosing randomly, then, then mathematically it wouldn't make any difference whether you were choosing random, num uh, random answers to bubble or just one letter. But the fact is, I have no assurance that you're going to choose randomly. And if you don't, then you make it less likely that you maximize um, your chance for getting questions right, you know, by luck on those questions that you're just pure blind guessing on. Unless you just pick one letter and choose it all the time. And as it so happens, not only is D the best letter, um, clearly, but it's uh, just objectively, but it also happens to be um, slightly, slightly more often uh, the right answer on the test. Um, so I think that the, the larger point here is just something that Ben and I have talked about before, which is, you know, if you're worrying so much about the time, it can prevent you from answering the questions correctly. So 
I guess what you're saying there is when the five minute warning is called, really just not a lot is going to change. You're you're not the game section. Yeah. Okay. I I I would probably feel that way about the entire test. Um, is it is it different? Do you think on the other sections? I do. Um, I uh, I feel exactly the same way about the games and about the logical reasoning. Um, and theoretically, I feel the same way about the reading comp. But here's the thing. We don't do this stuff in a vacuum. Um, we do it, you know, in the real world with a real clock ticking. And if you've really got five minutes left and an entire passage in front of you, theoretically, and if, and if, you, if I were building a, an LSAT robot, I would not have that robot do anything differently. I would have that robot adopt exactly the same posture. Because, again, I think that, that what we're doing in the reading comps, the most efficient effective, powerful means of dealing with it. And that means that it's also going to take, you know, the least possible amount of time to get the most points. Just our normal standard method, which would all suggest that, yeah, in reading comp, again, nothing changes except imagine for a minute that you are actually there in test day. You just finished up a passage. The proctor says you have five minutes remaining and now you're going to start reading. What does your reading look like? You're not reading at that point because you're a human being and um, you just can't, I don't think. I mean, there may be some people who can do this, but there would obviously be like sort of uh, super gifted weirdos of some sort um, who, can, who can read and really read with that kind of crushing time pressure on them. If I, if, I could, if I could get you to just ignore it, you know, I think you'd do the best because you'd, you'd, you'd spend, what you would do is if you spent two and a half of those five remaining minutes really reading the passage thoroughly and aggressively and actively, then those next two and a half minutes, you could totally expect to get three more questions right. But I think I'm, I'm going to make a concession to reality when I, when I say that I don't think that we'll read very well in those last five minutes. So then what is your advice for the reading comprehension passages at five minutes? I think we, I, I want us to try to get those three more questions right. And I think we do it by just diving right into the questions. Um, it would normally be, uh, I would think, the sort of fetch, directed fetch type question, you know, the, Passage. When a question asks you, what does the author mean by the term blunderbuss on line 37? Uh, you know, that makes sense as a place to start, right? You probably don't need um, an overall understanding of the passage to answer that question if you go back to the passage and find what the author is saying there. And then maybe counterintuitively, maybe, sometimes, a main point question would be a good question to answer in those last five minutes. If, if it's one of those passages that starts off with an ascription, you know, that says some people say that uh, peach jelly is delicious. However, you know, and right there, you know what the main point of the passage is, you know, peach jelly is not delicious. And whoever says that is an idiot. Yeah. Right. right. Um, and so you may be able to, you may be able to knock out one of those main point questions pretty quickly in some instances. It's worth at least, you know, considering. Yeah, so, and this is something I've never considered before. Yeah, Ben, Ben, what do you think about all this? Yeah, well, I guess um, if, if people get to that last passage and they have five minutes, I feel like 
two and a half minutes to read the passage, and, and maybe Dave, what you're saying is correct. A lot of people won't be able to really read, but um, I found that in in I think more cases than what at least you're suggesting is that when people read faster, they they can sometimes actually almost do better in terms of their focus on the passage. Again, it depends. But I, I guess with if there were actually five minutes, I would say, yeah, use that two and a half minutes, which is not a bad amount of time to read the passage. And then when you're going through the questions, um, as soon as you find an answer, I would say be a little more risky here. Say Normally, I would say read all five answers, but maybe in this circumstance, you find an answer you feel pretty good about, pick it and, and go to the next question. Because when you do that, you can sort of uh, you know, maximize those two and a half minutes and turn turn it into a situation where you may actually get to four or five questions, depending on how you know lucky you are in terms of how early the answer choices appear in each question. But I guess I would still kind of march forward like what you're saying with the games, uh, as opposed to changing strategy necessarily, except for skipping answers more readily. I think we should probably move on to our next topic, but I want to I want to just mention one thing the the listener asked and none of us mentioned, which was should I go back rather should I go forward or should I go back and double check the questions I already got to? Um, I think none of us said double check. Is that right? No. No. <laughs> Not with still questions on the on the board, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I never, ever go backward on the test. I, I, don't, I don't think I would ever double-check anything. Yeah, and especially not if you've already taken so long to answer them that you've left yourself with only five minutes, you know, for the, for the remaining quarter of the section. Yeah, so, so I think we're all on the same page that general strategy just doesn't, in, doesn't include going back. It, it's, we're going to answer the questions correctly the first time through. We don't want to handle the same question twice. So we're generally just going to go forward through each section and not be going backward. Uh, at least the, maybe very rarely would we go backward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so let's see, next topic here. Uh, how do I determine the author's tone or stance on a particular issue in reading comprehension? Uh, anybody want to take a crack at that one? Sure. So as I'm going through the passage, I am looking for whenever the author quotes other people. And <clears throat> the author will quote these people, you know, say many scientists think yada, yada, yada. And then sometimes the author will continue to quote them from sentence to sentence. You know, it's basically the author is laying out a longer argument. But sometimes these quotes, I mean, they're not literally in quotes, but when they're citing what other people think or argue, that will end after a sentence or two. And as soon as that ends, the, and the author starts speaking uh, for him or herself, then usually that's where the author's attitude is revealed. The author will comment on the other person's opinion in some way. Maybe the author will say it's important, or they'll use the word like unfortunately, or it's a, there's a, a wide variety of words, but you're looking for words that kind of reveal a positive or a negative about those opinions. And sometimes it's not there at all. They just, they quote somebody and then they quote somebody else. And I'm just constantly wondering, okay, well, where is your opinion going to come in? But that's, that's more the exception than the rule. There's usually some sort of word that reveals what the author thinks about that opinion of others. And 
that word reveals their tone eventually, especially when you get to the end and you look back at all the, the words that you might have under, at least I might tag in some way to say, hey, that revealed the tone. Is there a difference between the author's tone or stance or just the main point of the passage? No, I think they're all right. I mean, I guess there's slight nuanced differences, but at the end of the day, I feel like they all come together to help you answer those questions. The tone kind of tells you what the author's main point is probably going to be, at least along the lines of, and and vice versa. Yeah, to me, it's always seemed like the same thing. So, you know, I, I know PowerScore teaches this like acronym M-O-S-T or something. It's like main point. I don't even remember what it was, but there's tone and structure and all this stuff. And to me, it's like, did you get the main point or did you not get the main point? I don't know. Dave, what do you think? Uh, Well, I would frame it this way, that an author's tone or attitude could properly be seen as her purpose in writing plus her diction the reason that she's writing their main point, you know, what it is she wants us to say added to the words she uses. Uh. Um, so for example, um, I always tell this story to students in live classroom courses. And so they'll have heard this one before, but, um, for a little while I wrote at my college newspaper, um, at Texas A&M before I was fired for writing that was too, Colorful. You? <laughs> I'm shocked. I mean, I am shocked to find gambling in this establishment. Um, and they said, uh, you know, they said, Dave, you know, they gave me chances. But they said, Dave, you, uh, nobody ever exclaimed, Dave. Nobody exclaimed. Nobody ever claimed. Nobody ever um argued uh, God knows nobody ever ejaculated <laughs> they said Dave they said so you know if and 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 I think that's really powerful because that is a big part of the way an author expresses herself if I say that um, you know Nathan Nathan has demonstrated that uh, a loving, intimate relationship with a root vegetable can can really be rewarding. Um, if he demonstrated it, here's the thing. You can't demonstrate something that doesn't exist. You can't show me something that isn't real. So if I say that you demonstrated something, then I'm on board with you. I believe you. And you consider how that sentence changes completely. If I say, you know, Nathan claims that an intimate relationship with a root vegetable can be rewarding. Um, and, and same sentence, you know, I change one, one word and all of a sudden I don't believe you, you know, you claim it, but I'm not buying it and I'm sure not trying it. Don't knock it till you try it, Dave. (laughs) And then, yeah, that would be the last way to say it. If I just said, you know, Nathan says that, that this kind of relationship with root vegetables can be really rewarding and fulfilling. Um, then at that point I'm simply, I'm reporting. You know, and I'm doing what they wanted me to do at the battalion at AM. Uh, so it's the difference between reporting and editorializing. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it is expressed through word choice. Cool. Sure. Ben, you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, no. I mean, I think, I think really, it's, so it's almost like, Dave, what you're saying is look at the words 
uh, in the sentences in which the author is quoting or citing the opinion of someone else. And then I'm saying, look right after it. And it's really a combination of both those places. But you're looking for those word choices that will reveal the tone and ultimately the main point. Yeah, I mean, I'd say look at the word choices in the whole entire thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, okay, next question. Moving on. Uh, I have a, this is another reading comprehension related question, so this will be a good one. Uh, I have a tough time getting out of logical reasoning mode, and I end up being highly critical of a reading comprehension passage. Is this deterring me from fully understanding the passage? I feel like I'm wasting time picking apart arguments in passages. Yeah. Um, I think this one, it may be kind of tricky to express because on the one hand I do want you reading critically on the other hand I think you may be wasting time if you are reading with the same level of criticism in the in the reading comp as you are in the logical reasoning um, and maybe the way to think about it is that in the logical reasoning it is super important that you identify what the author has done wrong in the reading comp in as much as an author has made an argument it's important for you to understand what that argument is it's almost never that important that you be able to understand what's wrong with her argument in the reading comprehension um, because most of the questions and and actually as i'm saying this i'm thinking you know there are there are certainly exceptions to this in those questions that we get what, about once every six or seven passages that ask, you know, which of the following would do most a week in the author's argument in the third paragraph? So I suppose that question would really be an exception to what I'm saying. But if we set that question aside for a minute, we'll almost, outside of that exception, we'll almost never need to know what's wrong with the argument that an author is making in the reading comp. Right, yeah. And I, I agree with that. I wouldn't be expecting that there's something wrong with the reading comprehension argument. Nonetheless, I feel like reading hypercritically helps you to understand what's in the passage anyway. Mm. So I, maybe, you know, I, I just don't see how that would hurt. I don't, ben, what do you think? Yeah, no, um, I wonder if, if what the student is saying here is that they're after they're saying, oh, I feel like there's something wrong here. They're going back and like trying to describe that flaw like you might in a logical reasoning. And maybe that's where they're wasting their time. I don't know. I mean, I agree. Reading critically is important, although it's definitely not as important as it is in logical reasoning. And Dave is right. Those, those weakened questions are like one <laughs> in a blue moon where the vast majority are inference questions. So figuring out just basically what the author thinks is is by far the most important thing. So, yeah. I don't know if I said anything there. <laughs> <laughs> I think you kind of did. I mean, there may be the difference between, you know, realizing that in this reading comprehension passage, the author wants us to believe that, um, that vegetarians should eat oysters. Um in a in a um, in a logical reasoning passage that makes that same argument, it seems like it would be more important that we understand. Okay, she's claiming the vegetarian should eat oysters, 
but she's totally ignored the fact that oysters, even if they clean their environment and even if they have you know no central nervous system, they're still animals, and that may be the, you know she's so she's ignored this main component of her opponent's argument. Um, in the in the reading comp, it probably doesn't matter. I, I mean, I'm working from memory, I, you know, because this is something that I don't do myself. You know, I, I don't read in that kind of pick it apart, find out what the flaw is in her argument way for the reading comp. Um, instead, I would say, yeah, this is what she wants us to believe. Um, and that's what that's all I really care about. And so I guess I could see it as sort of two almost almost distinct activities. The first in which you identify what her conclusion is and the second in which you identify what she did wrong in arriving at that conclusion and for the logical reasoning, we have to do both of those things. For the reading comp, it seems to me that most of the time we only have to do the first thing. And so I agree with Ben that um, that really critical reading wouldn't hurt you unless it's, unless it's really taking you a lot of time. And I can imagine that sometimes it may. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't take you that much extra time to do that extra step and think, well, she's making this claim, but here's how she screwed up on the way there. Then, uh, then sure, I'm on board. Okay, seems like we did a pretty good job there. Let's uh, move on. Another question. I've been getting minus two or better on logic games, and all of a sudden, I got a minus nine. This freaked me out. Although I think this is just a fluke under suboptimal conditions, how do I handle something like this? Is this common? I think it's also important to emphasize that no one should be studying in poor conditions. Oh, this is a, now the editorializing is coming in, in the question itself. Um, I don't know if I agree with this. Reader is saying uh, no one should be studying in poor conditions, for instance, on a crowded train. Uh, okay, so what do we think about a bad section of logic games? And also, what do we think about studying in suboptimal conditions? Doomed. <laughs> <laughs> Let go of it and never forget it. <laughs> uh, Save on. it on the wall. Everybody, I was just, I was just telling Nathan that I'm a, I, I'm not really so much a Denver Broncos fan as I am a Peyton Manning fan. My dad went to the school at the University of Tennessee. I lived there for a long time, and I've, I've followed Peyton Manning since he was there. And he was just miserable last night. The whole team was miserable. Um, so I'm dating this podcast if we haven't already. Uh, but um, New England just embarrassed the team. And, um, and yet I still think it's pretty likely that, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, I'd be fine if, with moving this, moving this into a football podcast and we'll just talk about the chances of each team. <laughs> but I think it's still, even after last night's total beatdown, I think it's still possible uh, – that the Denver Broncos are the best team in football and that they'll win the Super Bowl. Um, and part of the way that they'll do that, if they do that, is by putting last night behind them. And everybody does this, you know? I mean, um, Michael Jordan made, you know, I mean, unquestionably the best basketball player of all time. And I don't care what you say about LeBron. Um, made only about half his shots. You're going to miss. You're going to fall down. You're going to get beat. It's part of the game. And the only thing that matters is whether or not you pick yourself back up. So the fact that you, um, that you had this bad day and you had this bad experience, you just have to relegate that to the part of your brain that knows that everybody has a bad day. 
Um, and you already know that. You know it because you're pointing it out as an exception. You know it's an exceptional experience. And exceptional experiences don't count nearly for so much as the day in, day out, everyday experience. You know, if you, if you told me that uh, most of the time you missed nine or ten questions, and then this one time you missed none, um, I would be as skeptical of that as the other way around, you know? Now, if you repeat it, if you, you know, if you used to meet, miss nine or 10 and now you missed none, and then the next time you miss none, and the next time you missed one, and the next time you miss none, uh, then okay, you, you've changed something. So if you used to miss one or two, and then you missed nine, and then the next time you miss 10, and the next time you miss nine, then I'm thinking, oh shit, something has gone wrong. Um, what have you done? But if, if it's just one bad experience, then I just don't think you, uh, I don't think you do anything with it other than, you know, acknowledge that, that you had a bad day and figure out what you can learn from it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Ben, you want to tack anything onto that? Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I would, I would just add two things. One, um, I remember right before I took it officially myself, my score dropped 11 points or so from about where I'd been scoring and I freaked out. So I totally sympathize with this, but you know, it, it bounced back. I, I don't know. I, I don't remember. <laughs> I just remember thinking my life was over and you know, my self-worth had been determined. Um, but the other thing I would add is that if you, even if you did get a bunch wrong, time after time, but you had been consistently scoring higher before, sounds to me like it might be burnout. So take a break, you know, like it, it, like you said, Dave, it's all about the trends, not the, the individual one-off scores. But even if you did get a bunch bad in a row, might just be burnout and you need to stop for a while and do something else. And I wanted to, I, yeah, I'm with you. And that burnout thing, that's huge. I mean, that could be it. Um, I wanted to address the second part of the question also. And, and I think, Nathan, you were already there. Um, that, uh, you know, the, the question was, I know we shouldn't do any prep under adverse conditions. And I, I really disagree with that um, quite strongly. I, I don't think you should do all your prep under adverse conditions. I think you should certainly uh, have even a majority of your prep look like test day um but especially if you're the kind of person that deals with nerves i think it can be incredibly effective to fold in a little bit of adversity in your test conditions um, and what i recommend is that people who really are feeling the you know the anxiety and the nerves and stuff that they should make it a point to do things like practice on a crowded train or go to the food court at the mall um, so that you have a taste at least of working with focus under conditions that, that aren't necessarily conducive to that focus. Yeah, the one thing that I would tack on to that, I, I have a couple points to make, but pra practicing on the train, absolutely no problem. Practicing on the train and then immediately scoring yourself and having your score determine your self-worth after that experience is ridiculous. Um, you know, sure, go explore different places to study. And also, you know, people that are commuters use that time commuting and study on the train. 
But that doesn't mean that you have to be doing timed scored sections while you're on the train necessarily. Um, the other thing is I happen to know that this student was, uh, he's been scoring himself in between sections on the test. <laughs> and I see students do this all the time. And I, I just, I don't think that's good for business. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I agree. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say I agree. And the other thing is, I mean, when you take the test officially, you're not going to know. So I, this is actually just a thought I had right now. Um, when you're done with the test, so definitely do not grade between the sections, but then when you're done trying to predict your score, I mean, that could be valuable, I guess, because you're going to have to do that um, after the test. I mean, not that it's going to matter that much because you should probably keep your score anyways, but thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. That's something I've been telling my students to do. Um, because it goes a long way towards dealing with the nerves of test day because you will never in your life feel worse about a performance than in the moments after you've just finished the real LSAT. Because right then, all you can think about are those questions that you struggled with. That's all you can think about, the ones that were hard. You can't remember with any kind of clarity or purpose all of those questions that you got right, all you can think about are the ones that, that hurt you. Yeah. And so if you can develop a mechanism for dealing with that eventuality, then, uh, then you'll feel better, which I think is important. I want you to feel good. Um, <laughs> and also you'll have a clearer vision for whether or not you should, in fact, cancel your score. I think what people will learn is that they have almost zero ability to predict how they did. Um, because I see the exact reverse happen, which is that, you know, kids these days, some of them have really good self-esteem, as you guys are aware of. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after this last test, I had a couple students who, like, felt like they had totally killed it. And I, I was like, really? And, and then... Um, as it turned out, they did not totally kill it. And then you get the, of course, you get the other kids who um, think they did horribly and turned out that they did great. So I love this idea, though. I've never done this before. I'm absolutely going to start doing that in my class tomorrow night. I'm going to have them all make a prediction uh, before they score themselves. I think that's an awesome idea. Okay, so do we have anything else on this? Basically, just shake off a bad test. Don't worry about it. Stop paying so much attention to the results. Pay more attention to the process. Yes. All right, let's move on. Um, so here's the next question. Should I be worried when I don't see a particular answer choice pop up often in a section? For instance, if I see that E was the correct answer seven times and A only once, is that a reason for concern? Uh, I actually counted once. Uh, it's been a few years now, but I, I counted. That's how, this is, you see what I do for you people? You see how I give and I give? Um, I did. I went through a whole section, uh, not a whole section, 10, 10 tests. Um, and, the, and it was at that point, the 10 most recent tests. And this was a few years ago. It was probably about like prep test 50 through 60. Um, but don't quote me on that exactly. And, uh, and I counted and it gave every evidence to me of being the product of total randomization. Um, because what I found is over those, over those 10 tests, over those thousand questions, um, the results came vanishingly close to, um, to perfect 
Like, uh, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, D was ever so slightly more popular, but it was like 20 points, I think 20.1% of the answers were D. And, and I think 19.6% of the answers were C, if I remember correctly, was the least common. Um, uh, and I've got this information written down somewhere, but it didn't seem that important to me. Um, so, you know, over the long haul, it, sh it shook out to be, you know, pretty much perfect. But given any single test, I think, I think there, were, there were tests where every single answer choice was the most common. You know, so there was a test where the most common choice on that test was A. And sometimes by a wide margin, like there would be some tests where uh, out of those hundred-ish questions, you might have as many as 26 questions whose answer was A. And that, you know, would really be powerful if it were replicable. But it wasn't, you know, because on the next test, you'd find that, that there were only 18 A's and there were 23 B's, and that was the most common. So there was a pretty large standard deviation on every test and yet a very, very, very small one um, over the course of 10 tests taken together, which seems like exactly what you'd expect, right, if you had totally randomized the process. And that both includes um, large swings from the most common answer to the least common answer and long runs of uh, the same answer. Yeah, so same thing would happen if you were flipping a coin, right? If we flip a coin 50 times, it's not going to come up 25 heads and 25 tails. Uh, it's probably going to come up more of one than the other, and there could be long strings of heads, and if you flip the coin heads 10 times in a row, it does not mean that the next one is more likely to be tails. Um, I actually am a little disappointed in our universities for not making this point more strongly to our students. Well, I, th I think it's possible that the questioner is asking whether or not the whether or not it really is random, you know, like whether or not uh, LSAC, LSAC manipulates the the answer choices in some way. And to that, my answer is it does not seem that way. It certainly seems totally random. Yeah, I would mm. go, go ahead, Ben. I would just add, too, that I get this question a lot, and usually it's in relationship to four in a row. So people will see four A's in a row or, you know, four B's or whatever. And I would say I see four letters in a row frequently. It happens all the time. And so nothing to take away from that. Yeah, it's almost like if that doesn't happen, you probably fucked something up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my answer is stop paying attention to that shit and answer the question that you're working on right now. It, it, what's exactly. the point of looking back up your answer sheet? Yeah, no, 100%. And that's the other thing, too, is like wh I, when I'm going through the test, I don't even notice that. So when these things come up, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. There are four E's in a row right here. But when did you notice that and why were you thinking about it? So, All right. I want to apologize for insulting the readers uh, or the, the listeners. We do really like all of your questions and um so I, <laughs> I know that you were probably asking, do they randomize it? And the answer, let's just say, is uh, yes, it's completely random. Can I ask you guys about guessing? Um, when I, uh, lately, when I have my students do practice tests, I have been, once in a while, I'll have a student who will go, you know, it's, if I guess on the last five, sometimes I get a bunch of them right and sometimes I get zero of them right. 
and uh, what should I do about that? So sometimes on my practice tests, I've been having students just give themselves one-fifth of a point for every question they guess on instead of actually caring whether they got it right or wrong. Have you guys ever done that, or what do you think about that? Uh, it makes a lot of sense. It takes the focus off of the, off of the outcome and puts it more on the process, which is, as you said earlier, exactly what we want. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It doesn't, to me, uh, in, in my experience, it hasn't seemed like that big of a deal, you know, like, like it's easy for me to say, if you don't answer five questions, we expect that you get one of them right. And that we can all kind of just live with that. So I guess that's essentially the same thing you're saying. Uh, hmm. How does students I, like it? Um, the ones who, who understand it, like it, you know, I, I do have a few students who, who get that. Um, and they're like, yeah, you know, I just don't, I just don't want to have that extra bit of randomness in my practice test results. And so mm -hmm. if you give yourself one fifth of a point for a guess, it's like, did I bubble in a guess? Yes, I did. Okay. I'm not even going to check to see whether it was right or wrong. I'm just going to give myself one fifth of a point. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think it matters. It's just, it is a way that you could take a bit of the, of the variance, you know, the variance that's not attributable to you you could take some of that variance out of your practice test results and then maybe see a little bit more clearly how you're doing. Yeah, interesting. I'd never thought of that. I, I guess I'd err towards the side of making things worse. <laughs> I don't know why I would do that. Like, if they randomly guessed a lot and got them correct, I might say, ooh, you know, what's the one-fifth? Where if they got them all wrong, I might say, oh, that happens. But that's also kind of overly negative, so... Okay, um, let's move on to the next topic here. We've got, uh, do I have to diagram every rule? There are some that I don't feel the need to. Example, each variable appears at least once. Do I need to diagram that rule? The reason why I feel like I don't is because I don't know how to. What do you guys think? No. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I yeah, I don't think there's any reason to diagram every rule. I mean, some of those rules like that, like that example, those are so frustrating to me because I get into them and like, what? Of course, it's only assigned once. I totally already assumed that, and how could it possibly have been otherwise? And one of the things that it points to is that we shouldn't ever make those kinds of assumptions because what the test writers want us to know, they tell us. Now. That doesn't mean that we have to always visualize everything. Um, I mean, if you're doing math and, and, and you have to do some complicated math, like, you know, uh, and just even complicated arithmetic, you know, 7,652 divided by 14, you're going to write that out, you know, but that's not because there's any inherent uh, beauty or necessity in writing things. It's because that is the fastest, most efficient, most effective way to get to the answer. On the other hand, if I ask you what's three plus five, you don't have to write that out. Or you wouldn't even think about whether or not you should write that out because, again, there's nothing inherently necessary or beautiful or artful or required in writing you would write because it works, and if, if there's no need for it, then, well, you've kind of already answered your own question. There's no need for it. Ben? 
Yeah. Um, I agree. Nothing to add. Do you you guys even have your students write down a list of questions? I've noticed that I see students who have like, even sometimes they'll number the rules, like they'll have a a list of rules, one, two, three, four, five, down the left side of their diagram. Do you guys have them do that? Because I don't. No, I have them link any rules together that they can as they go. Um, Sometimes for those, you know, those pure sequencing or pure ordering games, I'll even have them skip rules that don't link in and then come back to them. Um, but I, if they don't link in, then I just have them draw it right below the diagram. I, I don't really, I don't. I guess I don't see a, an importance of noting the inherent order of the rules or anything along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I tend to tell them that they already have a list of all of the rules. That's called the rules. I mean, they're there. So I don't really know the point of that. I don't know. What do you do, Dave? Um, two, and I think there are two sort of answers to this question. The first is what um, I do in the classroom, and that is um, when I'm teaching it. Always, there's a you know, there's a clear list, and it's numbered, <laughs> and it's just rule one, rule two, rule three, rule four. And the reason for that is tied to the reason that I uh, actually have students do it too. Um, and that is, I number them so that we don't lose a rule. Um, so I've got this list, and and Nathan, it's totally true that we've got this list of rules, and they are the rules. At the same time, those rules are offered to us in the abstract. And in order to be manipulable for most of us, um, and this goes back to my... Uh, my thinking about the uh, about why it's not necessary to visualize every rule is that for most of us, having a visual, concrete assessment of the rule makes that rule useful. Um, telling me that the second uh, the second digit in the code is twice as big as the third digit doesn't have that much inherent actionable meaning. But if you instead say that the second digit is either one or two and the third digit is then either two or four, now all of a sudden you've turned something that was abstract into something concrete. Um, And I think that that principle holds just generally for rules in games that if we can make the rules visual, we'll be able to uh, assess them more readily and manipulate them more efficiently. Uh, Also, I used to not do it quite so linearly. Like when I first started, I would just, uh, you know, I just, I I always reserved a space in my diagram for a place where I was going to visualize symbolically. Um, But I've become more and more, linear with it. So now it's not just here are my rules over here, but, but instead here's rule one, two, three, four, five, six. And, um, my thinking is that it makes it easier to follow when you're, when, when you're, you know, trying to do what somebody else is teaching you to do. And that, uh, and and there's no reason it needs to be numbered, you know, when you're just working through material on your own. Um, but I think, that uh, it, it, there's always the possibility. If the whole game section is about following directions, following those rules, then you've got to do everything in your power to follow those rules. 
And if there's any chance that you leave out a rule, then you, you're screwed, man. I mean, you leave out a rule and everything falls apart. So if you can organize your stuff so well that it makes it virtually impossible for you to leave out a rule, then I think you've done yourself a favor. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, one one question is this, the, the listener was asking about a question, uh, sorry, a rule that says each variable appears at least once. Sometimes they will list that in the like indented list of rules. Yeah. And sometimes they will just stash that up in the paragraph part of the setup of the game. So do you then approach it differently depending on where the test makers put it? Um, yeah, maybe because for example, if, if it really is, um, if it's a case of assigning things to groups and, um, and then I'm told that each member belongs to at least one of the groups, then that doesn't just change the way that I symbolize that as a rule, whether or not it appears in the list of rules or in the setup. That changes the way that I organize the whole game as a visual template. Right. So, so I want to be able to account for all that information. Um, I don't think we have to account for every rule visually, you know, in the same way that you just don't have to, uh, you don't have to write out two plus two in order to get four. But I do think that, uh, that it may, it may even make sense. And, and look, everything, you know, so far, everything we've talked about and almost everything I talk about, um, when we talk about LSAT, we're talking about generally. Right. I mean, for most people, this is the way we're going to do the greatest success, you know, and there are some things that are true for almost everybody. And then there are other things that are true for most of us, but maybe not for all of us. And this may be sort of one of those things. If you find that you are at all prone to skipping a rule, you know, if that's if that has happened to you before, then I think you need to take the obvious specific corrective action and you know visually note every rule and say, okay, I've got five rules in this game and I'm going to make sure that I apply five rules in every question that I answer. Uh, if on the other hand, you, you know, you're just like, what? That's not a problem. I mean, they're, they're the rules. They're right there. Right? <laughs> Why would that be a problem? Right. Then, I mean, awesome. Great. You know, then you don't have to solve a problem that doesn't exist for you. Cool. Okay. Um, here's another similar question asking when when we should symbolize. And I'm not sure whether this question uh, is directed at the logic games or directed elsewhere on the test. But when the, the listener asks, when should I symbolize a conditional statement? <clears throat> I think a conditional statements like tools. I mean, I think that's a it's an uh, almost almost perfect analog uh, to a tool. Uh, when I when I want to drive a nail, I mean, there's just nothing better for that job than a hammer. Um, I guess if you were like really, really awesome with a screwdriver and you could just point the head of a screwdriver right into the head of a nail and drive it home. I mean, you would have fantastic hand-eye coordination, I think, to do that. Um, but it's possible you could do that. And, you know, I mean, you could bang away with your, uh, with your iMac at a nail and you could probably get it in there yeah. too. Uh, but the point is that there's, you know, there's not only ever 
one tool for a job, but for that job, a hammer really is probably best at the same time. I do not run downstairs for my hammer every time I want to push in a thumbtack. So I think of conditional statements as being exactly the same. The, the, the conditional symbolization as being the same as that hammer. That I use it when it makes my life better. I will have opportunities to use it uh, that I don't take. You know? I would imagine on the logic games, you're always going to write it down. Totes. Okay, and on the logical reasoning, if it says every house on River Street that's brick has a front yard, yeah, you may or may not. Yeah, I would, because you know that was a parallel question, and I don't want to be able to see the relationship there to visually see it, but I don't think you have to. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, so my, my rule of thumb, well, first of all, I tell people that in law, I think that the question comes up most frequently in logical reasoning, right? So in logical reasoning, you're going to be diagramming or drawing these rules out maybe for one or two questions. I mean, I guess you could have a section in which it made sense to do three or four, but very rarely, because it's like most people, I think, are inclined to draw. They learn the rule for drawing if-then statements, and they say, oh, okay, I can draw this sentence, I can draw that sentence. It's like, no, try to figure it out first and see if you can understand it intuitively. The times that you're most likely going to need to draw are in those questions that tend to be really short, and more than one sentence has some sort of if-then indicator, like every or all. So maybe if the first sentence says if, then, if I go to the store, then I'll get angry, but then the next sentence is just not an if-then statement, and it's not a hidden if-then statement, then I probably won't end up drawing it. But if I see an if-then statement, and then I see another one, and then I see another one, and I look at the answer choices, and they're all if-then statements, like, whoa, this is probably a clear opportunity to draw. But again, uh, not very frequently. So if it's an easier question, if we're looking at questions like 1 through 10, <laughs> I, I might not draw. It's really the short ones near the end that have a lot of if-then statements. And it's typically an inference question or a sufficient assumption question and possibly a parallel question. Yeah, I'm not sure the question type matters as much to me as, it, as the nature of the argument itself. Uh, on a logical reasoning question, I would only diagram if I felt like I needed to because I feel like once you start diagramming on the logical reasoning, you're introducing a bit of abstraction into the analysis that's not, you know, I would rather let the intuitive parts of my brain understand it if possible, rather than getting super formulaic about it. Um, and again, like I, I don't think I would even look at the question type before I would decide whether or not I was gonna diagram. It's, do I need to diagram in order to understand this argument? If the answer is yes, then I'm gonna diagram. If the answer is no, then I'm probably not going to diagram. I like Dave's uh, hammer metaphor there. You know, uh, do I need to run downstairs and go into the garage and open up my toolbox and get out my hammer for this task? And if it's putting in a thumbtack or putting in a couple thumbtacks, maybe the answer is probably no. Most of the time, the answer is probably no. But on those few arguments that I just can't understand without going and getting the hammer, then I will go get the hammer in order to do that job. Does that sound right to you guys? 
I would just add that I'm, I'm talking about the question type more as like a, a necessary condition rather than a sufficient one. It seems, just so people know, it's not a situation where I'm saying, oh, this is an inference question, therefore I should use start drawing or something like that. It's just that the times that you are going to draw are probably only going to ever be in those three question types. So if you're looking at a different question type it, and you're feeling like, oh, should I draw? It probably doesn't make sense to. And that's not to say that when you're looking at an inference question, you should start drawing. It's just that it seems like those are the question types where it might, you know, become relevant. Cool. All right. So I have one more question here. Um, and that's, uh, it is a very common question. Very simply, how do I decide between two remaining answer choices? Go ahead, guys. Whew, that's a big question. Um, I think we've got we've got a series of rules depending on what the, what the question was asking you. You know, so for example, if uh, if it's a necessary assumption question. <clears throat> And you've got two answer choices that could conceivably answer the question. Um, then you've got a couple of tools available to you. The first is, uh, you know, what we, what we call the negate test, right? Where the idea is that if this is truly necessary to the argument, then the argument can't live without it. So if you take it away, if you negate it, then the argument dies. And if you can take it away, if you can negate it, and the argument doesn't die, well, then the argument didn't need it in the first place, and it's not the right answer. Um, so on a necessary assumption question, you would do this negation test uh, on the remaining two answer choices and see if that helped you out. Right. Uh, what about in another case? Um, well, I'll, I'll stick with the necessary assumptions. Because, okay. uh, well, we don't need it, but we're on the topic. So your negate test works great. Um, you could even before you get to that, um, if you want it, or after you get to it, you can think about language cues. Um, the thing that is necessary is likely to be pretty small in the same sort of way that, you know, the things that we need in life are relatively small. We have to have some food. We have to have some water. Um, we don't have to have filet mignon. We don't. Um, and in that same sort of way, the right answer to the necessary assumption question tends to be pretty small. So if you've got two answer choices and you just had to choose between them somehow, I would choose the smaller one. And then on a, on a necessary assumption question. Yeah. Okay. And we can go through, I mean, we've got rules like that for for virtually every type of question in the well, I guess for about half the questions in the logical reasoning. Um, Just to contrast, on a sufficient assumption question, if you narrowed it down to two answer choices, what would you be looking for there? The bigger one. Because if you think about it, it's right there in the nature of the question. You know, if you've been asked what is necessary for the argument, then it has to be something that the argument can't live without, that the argument needs, like it's food and water. Sometimes I get food once in a while. <laughs> you have to, you know, if you're not getting food once in a while, you're not living very long. Okay. And on a sufficient assumption question. Think about, think about it this way. If we talked about what would be necessary to get into Yale Law School, um, there's a list 
There's a list, my friend. And it includes such things as the ability to breathe uh, Earth's atmosphere. Because if you can't breathe Earth's atmosphere, you're, you're not going to succeed at Yale Law. You have to also, you have to have access to a number two pencil. You don't have to own the pencil, <laughs> but you do have to have a pencil because if you don't have a pencil, you can't take the LSAT. And if you can't take the LSAT, your application won't be considered at Yale Law and you won't go to Yale Law. So you have to, um, you know, you have to have uh, somebody that can send in uh uh, an application for you, you know, if, if, and, and, and now there you've got a couple of avenues, you know, you don't have to do it electronically. You can still do it by mail. So you'll have to either have access to somebody who can do what we call electronic mail or email for sure, <laughs> or, or have, you know, a stamp that you can deliver to the postal service. So you need a bunch of things, including, including that pencil to go to Yale law. All those things are necessary. And we go on and on and on. Um, we haven't even gotten to your grades or your LSAT score yet, right? Uh, on the other hand, what would be a sufficiency to get you into Yale Law? I mean, that thing is so big that it's a fiction. I mean, there is yeah. no thing that is big enough by itself to get you into Yale Law. Yeah, I've got three 180s. That does not guarantee I get into Yale because when I was in college, I spent most of my time... Um, let's say living clean and doing healthful things. And that's the story I'm sticking to. But in all that clean, living, <laughs> healthful living, uh, I didn't do so great in my, in, my, uh, in my classes, especially freshman year. So, you know, my GPA is like a 3.3. Three. Um, I've got probably about as good a chance as anybody has, but certainly not my, my LSAT scores aren't sufficient to get me into Yale law. Um, now, if combined with some other premises though, like right. if there was a premise that says, uh, anyone whose parent was formerly the president of the United States right. will get into Yale law. Right. And see, and, but I want you to notice that even that, I mean, well, that's probably pretty close to a sufficiency. It really wouldn't be if your if your mom or dad was the president of the U.S., but then you went out and um, you know molested root vegetables, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it was your job. Um, Yale might decide, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cool that your dad was the president, but you're disgusting, and we don't, we don't. I'm sorry, you know, go to Harvard. Um, Let's move away from the necessary sufficient assumption issue for a second and let's talk about a different type of question. So, you know, on a main point question, how, how if you're if you've narrowed it down to a 50/50, do we have any tips for that? Main point question. I'll go. On a main point question, uh, if I had narrowed it down to B and C, for example, uh, and I really wasn't sure if I was sure that both of the items had been in the argument and I, if I was sure that they were both kind of related to the main point of the argument, my test might be, does B support C? Because if B does support C, then B would not be the answer to a main point question. C would be the main point if B supports C. On the other hand, if I read B, therefore, C, and it didn't make any sense, I might try it the other way around. I might read C, 
therefore B, and then if it makes sense in that direction, if C supports B, then B would be the main point, not C. Yeah. Because the main point is the thing that the entire argument is structured to support. So there's just another example of, uh, depending on the question type, I'm going to probably have a different strategy for how to pick between two remaining answers. Uh, ben, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, so are, you mean specifically about main point? Or no, just, just deciding between two remaining answer choices. Dave's right, that's such a, it's a huge topic, so it's going di to differ depending on what question type we're talking about. Yeah, so I do have some general advice for the three sections. For, okay. reading, for reading comp, I would say the vast majority of questions are some form of inference question. They're, in other words, they're asking you, hey, look, given what was said in the passage, what has to be true? And so now there are various forms of inference questions in reading comp, but because so many questions are basically some form of inference, I would be most worried when I'm comparing two answer choices about the word strength. And specifically, I'd be worried about the word most because I feel like word, the word most is one of those words in reading comp that is used to make an answer choice just go a little too far because it's not as strong as all, so it doesn't stick out as much. But I see it a lot as saying, oh, oops, yeah, we don't know that about most species. We just know it about the, the several that they talked about in the I passage. guess that's a good point. Most and its synonyms, right? So typically or generally. Mm -hmm, exactly. Th those could be words that just that one word could make an answer choice wrong. So what you're saying is, on a on the entire reading comprehension section, at least for most of the questions on the reading comprehension section, if you had narrowed it down to a 50-50, you're probably going to choose the more conservative of the two answers. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Then for the game for the game section, um, which of course is a totally different animal, but I feel like when you're down to two answer choices, there's one one of two things. Well, actually, or maybe both things. First thing I do is I right away as I just compare the difference between the two answer choices, especially if it's some sort of list, because anything that's the same can be ignored immediately, right? That's irrelevant to whether the answer choice is right or wrong. And then once you've narrowed in on those differences, sometimes people look at it and they go, oh, I got two answers left. Well, the reality is you only have to test one of them if you, if you still have to test something, because if it's right, then it's right, and if it's wrong, then you just pick the other one. So... I would say for games, uh, words, you know, comparing the differences. And really that tip could be applied to logical reasoning and reading comp on the occasions that the answer choices are very similar. You just start going through them and saying, okay, that, that's pretty similar, that's pretty similar. Ooh, that's a difference. Let me focus in on that difference and see if that makes a difference in terms of how I feel about this answer choice. Okay, cool. I have one more tip that I would like to offer, which is uh, generally don't pick the answer that you don't understand. I mean, if, you know, this is like sort of a trust your gut kind of a thing. If you, if you understand and hate A and B and C, and you know that the answer must be D or E, but D you know is pretty good, but E you don't understand, I would absolutely choose D every single time. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but... I, I think the other half of that is that if you if you don't like 
I'll say it this way. Don't pick an answer you know is wrong. <laughs> if you don't like A, B, C, and D, and you don't understand E, pick it because, you know, you knew A, B, C, and D were wrong. Don't pick one of those. Instead, you know, pick the one that you don't understand. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. I would just caution, you know, I think a lot of students, well, students don't understand answer choices more frequently than we don't understand answer choices. You know, like I can use that strategy of, well, it just, it just can't be A, B, C, or D. So it just has to be E, even if E is written in a different language. But that's a pretty rare kind of a thing. You know, I, I think with students, I see more often, I see the thing of like, yeah, well, I didn't really understand E and because I just, you know, I'm struggling with this test and I don't think I'm smart enough to do this test very well, so I picked E. <laughs> and it's like, nah, the, the test is generally easier than you think it is. And you said you thought B sounded pretty good and as it turns out, yeah, B's the answer. So stop, I, you're totally right. If you absolutely know that four answers are wrong, then you know that the, that the only remaining answer is right. But if you're not sure, and if you're going back and forth between a 50-50, Boy, I, I, I got to pick the one I understand, don't I? Yeah, I would add to that that I, I feel like students fall into two camps, and one is the camp that you're talking about, and I have no idea how many fall in each camp. But one is to pick answers that they don't understand, or two, to just avoid them like the plague, which, um, like Dave is saying, if, even if you get down to two and you're like, okay, these are two answer choices, one I don't understand, one that seems decent – but if it seems decent, but you also have cl a clear reason maybe to dislike it, that's where I maybe would suggest to pick the, uh, the one that they don't understand at all. Okay, we'd have to see some examples of that. I mean, I would just be really worried in that case that the answers don't have to be perfect, right? Especially on the logical reasoning. They don't have to be perfect. And there are a lot of times where you're picking the best out of a bad lot of answers. Yeah. So there, I just, I'd be really afraid of students thinking that they can pick, just because there was an answer, you know, they, they hated A, B, and C, they get it down to D and E, D sounds pretty good except for there's one word that they're kind of a little skeptical of, Sure. and then E they completely don't understand, Yeah. I, I have a hard time telling them to pick E in that case. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, this is, we, we talked about how almost everything we're going to talk about is in the general and yeah. I think maybe entering one of those areas where it's hard to even know what the general is, you know, uh, you know, Nathan, you feel like in your experience, you're seeing more students who are, you know, approaching the test from, you know, this lens and, uh, and it feels like I've seen just as many have approached the test from this other lens, but you know, neither of us have probably counted, right? No, no, definitely not. <laughs> so, we, you know, it may be, there may be a pretty good mix of students there. This is something we, you know, we shouldn't generalize too heavily, perhaps. I, I think you're right. Um, so I think that we did a great job today of getting through a ton of content. Um, Dave, you're, yes. this is the first time that the listeners, uh, many of them, have heard of you. Where do they find out more? What are you, what are you up to? Tell us uh, what's going on with Velocity Prep. Um, well, Velocity is all online video, which I think is the bitchingest way to learn anything. Um, and what's up now is that we've just released a couple of things 
um, an LSAT grader that'll let you grade your tests, any tests of the modern era. Um, and for me, that begins with this current millennium. So any test from this millennium, anyum, anyum, anyum. That wasn't an echo effect. I did that all. <laughs> um, you can grade it and then get a graphic representation of your performance so that you can see how well you're doing over time. And this is free. Um, we're also doing free explanations of every right answer to every question from every test from this millennium. And uh, partly using this, some of this new tech, we are now offering the world's most amazing guarantee. Um, and I can, I can say that with some confidence because uh, like our guarantee is, is just the simple standard straightforward you're going to improve or you get your money back. You have to do the course, but if you do the course and you don't improve, of course, we'll give you your money back. The course works. But um, I think it's better than that because if you find some other guarantee that some other company is offering and you think that guarantee sounds awesomer somehow than ours, then we'll match it. So this is how confident we are about what we're doing. There's, uh, there's nobody that does this better and so if, if, uh, if you find something you like, we'll, we're, we're in it, we'll match, we're there. And so that's what I'm excited about right now at Velocity. And if you want to find us, it's, you know, Velocity LSAT. Cool. Uh, how about you personally, Dave? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, anything like that? Oh, yeah, all those things. Um, uh, I don't really do personally Twitter, um, Facebook. You can you can find you probably there's Dave Hall is a pretty common name. I mean, if you uh, so I don't know if you find me if you Google me, but um, but uh, for sure you can find me through Velocity and and we do keep track of all that stuff. And I'm totally into being friends on Facebook if you want. Uh, I just I don't honestly I don't know how to tell you to find me personally on Facebook. My name is Dave Hall. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know. All right. I think that's about it for today. Sounds good. Dave, thanks so much for coming on. Hopefully we'll uh, get you back for some more comments about root vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't talk enough about them. Ben, you have anything you want to add? No. Thanks for coming on, Dave. That was fun. Thanks, thanks for having me. I look okay. forward to talking again. Thanks, everybody.